Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. Hi, we're here with Stan Caldwell. He's Executive Director of Mobility 21, a U.S. DOT National University Transportation Center for Mobility. He's also the Executive Director of the Traffic 21 Institute at the Carnegie Mellon University. He's founder of the Traffic 21 blog, and among all this, he also finds time to be a professor of transportation and public policy at CMU. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, Stan. We're grateful and very happy to have you here. Thanks, Ken. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm looking forward to this. I'm a big podcast fan. That makes my job certainly a whole lot easier in all this. So, um, you know, Stan, in preparing for this podcast, I've spoken to a lot of your friends and colleagues. And one of the things that I've learned about you is that you're a person that's known as much for giving back to the Pittsburgh community as helping to guide it to a connected tomorrow active with organizations like pump.org, which is the Pittsburgh Urban Magnet Project. And that's not to mention all of these various wellness and diversity and political engagement activities that you find time for. I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit about pump.org and why it's important for you to be involved in the community outside of the technology realm and those things that you're normally known for out here in Pittsburgh? Well, Pump was the Pittsburgh Urban Magnet Project. And actually, that was a young professional organization. And uh, if you can see from my resume, I'm officially no longer a young professional by uh, maybe a decade or two. But Pump was the organization that I first got involved with when I came back to Pittsburgh in 1997. I was down in Washington, D.C. for a little bit and um, some other areas. But when I came back to Pittsburgh, uh, I wanted to get engaged with what was happening here, and that was the time when we were just going through the, you know, in the midst of the dot-com bubble. And uh, but Pump was a group that was really looking at how we keep young people in Pittsburgh and how we engage young people in Pittsburgh. Because as you alluded to earlier, um, you know, we were going through a significant transformation from a industrial city to a technology city. And, uh, and Pump was really at the forefront of that. And, and I wanted to be a part of that and be con- engaged in the community. And uh, that was a really good outlet to do that. And they didn't just bring young people together and engage them, but they engaged them in public policy. And at that time, I had been working for uh, uh, our U.S. Senator uh, Arlen Specter here in Pennsylvania. And so I was involved in uh, a lot of community and economic development. Again, as you alluded to earlier, part of this transformation from an industrial economy to a technology economy and uh, just saw this as a good opportunity to get engaged. And so Pump is still very active today. And uh, I actually met my wife through Pump uh, way back in the in the 90s. And, uh, and she today is a, uh, a member of uh, city council here in the city of Pittsburgh as well. So we both kind of kept our uh, uh, kept our roots active in community involvement because it's just something we've always been passionate about. So let's talk a little bit more about growing up in Pittsburgh. 
you have to understand, I am a recent transplant of only three years. So um, I wouldn't call myself a Yenzer or a Pittsburgher. And I'm working on that Steelers fan kind of thing right now because I am a diehard Packer fan. So um, what I'm wondering, though, is between then and now, Pittsburgh is different. And do you think the problems that you saw growing up, the problems you saw early in your professional career as Pittsburgh is transitioning to this post-industrial economy, did you think they could be solved? Or, or did you think that these were so insurmountable that, eh, you know, the, the, the city is not gonna be able to, to move on from the steel mills, from the heavy industry? Was there hope back then? I think that there was a, a lack of recognition. I think this whole tr the biggest challenge I've seen through this whole transition in my lifetime was really not with the, the, the physical changes and the physical adaptations, but really changing the perception of the community here in Pittsburgh. It wasn't, and it seemed like the perception changed from the outside sooner especially to a lot of people that came back to Pittsburgh that had not, that had either one had never been here or two had maybe grown up here. A lot of my peers had grown up here and left for 10 or 20 years and came back and said, wow, look at this transformation. It was harder for Pittsburghers to recognize that if they had never left. And I think that was the harder audience to convince than the outside audience. But there was a concerted effort from a lot of leaders, actually the person that recruited me here to Carnegie Mellon in 2010, uh, Rick Stafford, people like that who had been working for decades and decades on investments, and this is investments back into the 80s, things like the Pittsburgh Supercomputing Center or the new Pittsburgh Airport or the um, you know, life sciences greenhouse or digital greenhouse. These were initiatives where we were investing uh, state funds and other funds into uh, technologies that would help transform us to more of a eds and meds type of new economy as opposed to the industrial old economy. So there were kind of two things happening at once. There were concerted efforts from uh, civic leadership to um, to make these investments, but it really took you know 20 or 30 years for this process to happen. You know, people come in today, now, and you know, organizations like mine are kind of reaping the benefits of saying, "Wow, you guys, uh, you know, have really turned Pittsburgh around." Uh, but we, we you know we get to point to investments way back in the 80s that we're reaping the benefits from now that didn't see the light of day for 20 years. One interesting personal point for me in all this is the wow factor really, you know, the, the first time I had set my feet down in Pittsburgh and that was over in the East Liberty area and watching Uber ATG cars go back and forth, you know, nearly a, a minute by minute basis, you know, uh, almost three years ago. And, you know, looking up and, and seeing what you've done, and we're going to talk about this a little bit in terms of having a connected city, having a, a smarter city. It was things that I didn't expect that I think initially made me feel more of I'm in a San Francisco or I'm in, you know, perhaps a Seattle rather than I'm in this post-industrial city. But we can both agree that that journey still needs to, to move on a little bit more um, to get that transition complete, which makes me 
interested to, to know, do you think that the tech industry has really sufficiently rooted itself here? You know, I, you can go and you could see the Google office building, you could see Apple here, you could go through the laundry list of tech communities, you know, many of which are brought by CMU. But do you really think we've reached critical mass in tech or are we just starting that climb up the hill? Well, I think we're getting a critical mass that we've never had in the past. There, you know, there was a time when it was harder to recruit people to Pittsburgh because they might have been recruited by a company, say, in the early days of Google's office opening here, or even back in some of the, you know, early, uh, you know, late 90s dot-com companies. But if the people weren't from Pittsburgh, it was a big risk for them to be able to come in for one company, but understanding that, hey, if things don't work out for this company, I can't just walk across the street and go to a competitor and have a job the next day. Uh, now I think we are getting that critical mass where people can do that. And so there's a much higher level comfort for people to move themselves or move their families from another city to Pittsburgh uh, to, to make that investment. Which is a great segue to what I wanted to talk about next. I mean, we can talk about the people, but we also have to talk about the money. And one of the things that I've noticed in my travels between the West Coast and here are stark differences in the investing philosophy between the Pittsburgh community and, say, the West Coast money. The West Coast money seems to have a paradigm where we'll invest a little bit in 100 companies, and we know that five will win for us. Versus Pittsburgh, what I'm saying is that we're trying to identify those five winner companies to the best that we're able to and then invest a lot of money in them. And, you know, I'm just kind of wondering, is this difference in how capital flows into these young companies, is that inhibiting what we're seeing here in Pittsburgh? Or is it maybe just something that I'm sensitive to because I travel back and forth between the coast, but everything is working fine over here when it comes to getting money and ideas together, same place. Well, a lot, of, a lot of these observations, you know, of course, are you know personal, so you know they're biased by my experiences. But in general, the observations that I'm seeing is that you know the industry, rather than throwing a lot of early money around even on the coast seems to be moving more towards waiting to see um, waiting to see companies become successful to a certain level and then investing more money so instead of trying to get a company cheap early on waiting till that company has clients and is more established and then putting more money into that company to buy a uh, to make a better bet but in Pittsburgh the, you know, the challenge is that our, you know, our financing here, our local financing here has always been more conservative. Um, so that's, I think, a, you know, an observation that I've seen and that continues to be a challenge today. Um, but second, for what we saw a lot, particularly in the, you know, in the 90s and the dot-com era, and was that if you did get East Coast or West Coast investment and Remember, I'll say East Coast because Pittsburgh is the the biggest city in Appalachia, and we're still still Appalachian and Midwest from that perspective. That you know, East Coast or West Coast, you know, funding coming in would typically try to attract the company to then move out to 
you know, San Francisco or, or Boston or something like that. So if a company could make it big, and that was a challenge for Pittsburgh, because if we could grow our companies, that was great. But all of a sudden, if they would all get to a certain point of growth and then leave, that doesn't give us sustainable development here in, in Pittsburgh. And so the idea was, how do we attract money to, to, you know, to stay here? And I think it's really up to the companies to be able to push back and say, no, we want to you know, we're going to be able to get the uh, talent that we need here, and uh, we're going to be able to be competitive here in Pittsburgh. And I, companies have been able to stay more successfully than they have in the past. So I think that's helpful. But still, I believe it's a challenge for Pittsburgh. If you're going to if you're going to try to get startup capital for a company here, it's going to take you significantly longer to go through that process just because it's a more conservative process here than you would on the West Coast. Sure. You know, certainly the city right now is making a big bet on a driverless future and making the city attractive to the companies right now that are looking at um, the sensors and looking at the vehicles and looking, quite frankly, for a place to test them in, a, in the real world. We, we started at the beginning of this podcast talking about how you're anchored at CMU. All of our listeners, you know, they remember Red Storm. They remember and understand CMU as a pioneer in autonomous vehicles. Do you think it was natural that the city of Pittsburgh would embrace a driverless future and become a driverless test bed? Or do you think this was something that the community needed to get forced into? I think that the driving motivation behind that was really the talent that was here. You know, we do claim that Pittsburgh is a great test bed because of the diversity of the geography and the weather and the street conditions and all these others. You know, but there are a lot of other cities that have those same attributes in other areas. And so I and I remember when we were first, uh, you know, testing on, you know, on roadways here early in uh, I don't know, I'd say 2013, you know, it, it, it really just started as an incremental process. There really wasn't a time where we went and said, okay, this is the first day that we're going to do this. I remember when, you know, one of the researchers I was talking to, you know, regarding this, you know, research, you know, and said, oh yeah, you know, here's some data from where we are, you know, from our operation on second Avenue. And I said, you were on Second Avenue. <laughs> and it was just kind of this, because for me, it was a big milestone. You know, but for them, again, if you're out with a vehicle operating it, and then you start to go into different types of incremental um, driverless modes, uh, it's, a, it's a very incremental process. And, you know, it really wasn't an overnight process. And it really wasn't until, you know, it was actually in 2014 when we had done a uh, conducted a driverless vehicle uh, demonstration from Cranberry Township, which is a municipality outside the city of Pittsburgh, actually neighboring Butler County, 33 miles to the Pittsburgh International Airport that went through signalized traffic intersections and two highways for 33 miles. And we had Congressman Bill Schuster, who was chair of the Transportation and Infrastructure, yeah. And uh, Barry Shoke, who was PennDOT secretary at the time. And I remember even a few days before that, the, uh, you know, we, so one of the people on our team posed the fact of, 
oh, should we check with the state police? Is this even legal? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then, um, which, which we did. And, uh, but he, then when we did that, that was the same time. And it was big news because it, um, uh, because it was, uh, you know, one of the first times this was really being publicly demonstrated on the road. But then at that same time, that's when Google was kind of outed as, oh, yeah, we've been driving a half million miles in California with automated vehicles. And then all of a sudden after that, all the other automotive companies started coming out of the closet and saying, oh, yes, we've been doing automated vehicle operations, but we've all been keeping it secret. That you know, it, it kind of all exploded at that time. But before that, there had been years where everyone was just doing this stuff in secret. And so it was, uh, but it was happening. Stan, I think it's really fascinating to talk about how well this community here in Pittsburgh has accepted driverless technology. But I think you'd agree there are still maybe some pockets of resistance out there. Can you tell us a little bit more, you know, what are the, the concerns that you're hearing and what are the challenges to testing not only up here in Pittsburgh, but really any city that wants to start looking at how these vehicles operate within the confines of, of their city walls, so to speak? Well, this is my background in, in public policy that's gotten me very interested in the research side of this. So I'm actually doing some research around this right now with connected and automated vehicle public policy. And what I've seen from my experience first getting involved with this in 2010, when I would go out and talk about automated vehicles, either locally or nationally, the general response was, well, that's really interesting what you guys are doing, but it's not happening in my lifetime. So, you know, it's, it's not going to affect me. And then once, you know, in 2014, you know, as you know, the the Google activity started coming out, and the the other commercial OEM activity started coming out, and CMU was on the road. Then all of a sudden, people were saying, "Wow!" Especially policymakers were starting to say, "Okay, we do believe this is going to happen in our lifetimes. So how can we start preparing for it?" Then that's when we started really working with some of these communities, whether it was the State Department of Transportation or the city or others, to really help come up with policy initiatives around connected and automated vehicles. But the public, I think, still didn't see a lot of this activity really happening until they started seeing the vehicles on the road. And it was really, I think, particularly here in Pittsburgh, but then this had national implications as well, when Uber ATG came into Pittsburgh and started operating a, an autonomous taxi fleet where you as a Uber user in Pittsburgh, um, through a random process, could just have an autonomous vehicle come pick you up for one of your rides. That was a big eye-opener for, for people here to really see that, wow, this is happening. But then I was always anticipating more resistance kind of at, at each turn. And I was really shocked that it wasn't happening, that there, that there you know, wasn't significant parts of the community saying that they were concerned about these vehicles on the roadway. And, uh, and it wasn't until the fatality in Tempe um, through the Uber testing out there that we really started seeing concerns about, concerns about the safety. Sure. But we had groups here like, uh, you know, Bike Pittsburgh is a uh, pedestrian and bicycle advocacy group. And they did, you know, kind of pre, 
um, pre-Tempe did a, a survey of, of bicycle riders who, you know, said that they were, you know, had more concerns with human drivers than automated drivers just because of uh, road rage and aggressive behavior of human drivers on the roadways. And they did a recent follow-up survey that kind of, that had similar results. So it's, I've been, you know, honestly surprised that there hasn't been more resistance. What I am starting to see now, which is more interesting is that, okay, so you had this first iteration where, uh, or, you know, this first phase where people said, okay, this is, this is not going to happen in my lifetime. So it was kind of the denial phase. And then you had this, you know, this realization phase that, wow, this is happening and this is great. This is going to, this is going to change the world. I'm not going to have to I'm not going to have to worry about driving. I'm not going to have to own a car, you know. And so that's where we got into, you know, I think more of the hype phase that went through 2018 until the Uber fatality. And then now we're starting to get into the kind of trough of disillusionment after that. And I think we're actually kind of getting out of that trough of disillusionment. But people are starting to question this whole you know, bringing up the, the, the AI for good, artificial intelligence for good concept of, you know, okay, we, we do believe that the technology is coming, but you know what? We don't really trust that the companies or the technologists um, are, you know, you know, having all the public interest in mind in developing this. And so I think that is the biggest concern right now is that people are starting to question is this really going to is this going to create more congestion is this going to create more inequity is this going to create more uh, problems than the technology is going to solve absolutely and you know i think one of the factors that maybe contributes to this dialogue is that if you look at the social benefits of the autonomous vehicle so if you set aside you know am i going to be picked up um, in 5 years 10 years or 15 years and you change the focus to do you know the positive impact this is going to have on the environment when you talk about smaller fleets when you talk about better um, utilization of vehicles um, when you talk about the ability to safely transport people who don't have transport available to them right now you know i i think that kind of opens up a broader discussion than you know uh, does this technology work or not? So I, I do think that there are many segments of communities out there that are pragmatically cheering this technology on, knowing that it does have the ability to change society and to actually benefit society. Now, one of the things that I know that you do work on, and we talked about this as I introduced you, was this project called Traffic 21 over at CMU. And I have to say, Stan, that I think I found out about Traffic 21 long before I ever knew that there was a Traffic 21 at CMU because I would drive down the streets here and I would see signposts and lights that were tricked out with these power systems with what I assumed was some sort of network connectivity, power and data cables and cameras. And then I would see groups of people 10 to 15 strong Surrounded, you know, uh, surrounding these power poles, and it looked like they were having academic discussions about the systems there. And so I said, 
you know, there's something there's something strange going on with the traffic lights here in Pittsburgh. And I come to find out that it's all part of these initiatives um, on adaptive traffic signals that you and Traffic 21 have piloted. I know Traffic 21 is bigger than more is bigger than uh, just traffic signals. Can you tell us a little bit about that, what the Institute is, the smart tech that you're working on? I'd love to hear more. So Traffic 21 was an initiative that started back in uh, 1999, the year before I came to CMU. And what it was was local philanthropist Henry Hillman came to the university, and actually it was from a complaint about a traffic light. <laughs> and he said, he said, you know, I see this whole world of intelligent transportation systems emerging globally. We should be doing this here in Pittsburgh for three reasons. One, so that we can actually improve our transportation system by being a test bed. You know, let's take some of this new technology, test it out in Pittsburgh, be a test bed, and then that way get some of the early benefits of this. And then second is this could actually help to improve our image as a smart city. Going back to our earlier conversation, Henry Hillman was engaged in some of those early conversions of Pittsburgh from an industrial city to a smart city. And this was, you know, 1998, I think, is when the IBM Smarter Planet campaign had just come out. And so it was really kind of Henry saw the the future of jumping on this bandwagon early and saying, look, we're a smart city. We're no longer an industrial city, but we're a smart city. And then third, he said, this could even help us to spin out new industry clusters around smart transportation and smart cities. And so, uh, you know, Henry was, uh, of course, a you know, billionaire philanthropist and business person and had a lot of foresight on these and helped us spur this Traffic 21 in Institute here at Carnegie Mellon. So again, that was in 1999. And so what we did was I was then hired on by Rick Stafford, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, to kind of start to organize this initiative and really be that liaison between Traffic 21 is the liaison between the community being the test bed and the researchers at the university. And so what we found, we kind of responded to, to Henry at the time, well, we don't have a transportation department or transportation degree at CMU, but we did have people doing transportation across the university. And we have seven colleges at CMU, and there were five of the colleges from the beginning that were already tied in that had transportation work, including uh, information systems, data analytics, uh, architecture and design, all different types of engineering, computer and electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, um, civil and environmental engineering, and of course, computer science and robotics. And so we had faculty from across the university already doing transportation, but Traffic 21 became the umbrella then to bring them together. So what we did is we got some early money from the Hillman Foundation and said, hey, we have some funding. If you would like to pilot some of your research in the real world testbed of Pittsburgh, we can provide you some funding to do that and help coordinate between the city and other partners your activity. And that's what we did. So I remember back to the traffic signal one. Uh, it was about a, a week before the Christmas holiday, and I had to go down to the city of Pittsburgh and say, hey, one of our researchers has got an innovative way to use robotics to run your traffic signals. Can we have robots run your traffic signals? 
And they essentially said, sure, we'll, uh, we'll get a small amount of signals. And those original nine signals, that pilot turned into, a, you know, a 50 uh, signal pilot today, which doesn't only have adaptive traffic signals um, run by machine learning, but also has connected vehicle technology and um, has spun off into a company, Rapid Flow Technologies, which is deploying this in other cities. One of the things that I've learned about adaptive traffic signals is that in these pilots, you found that you can decrease wait times by 40%, you can decrease emissions by 21%. And Stan, I'll be darned if I don't see that happening every day because I travel quite a bit through those intersections that have the adaptive signals. If you kind of plot where you are right now with time savings and the emission savings, where do you think we'll be in, you know, five or 10 years when, say, you get an entire city of thousands of traffic signals? What order of magnitude are we looking at in terms of helping our cities out? I think that's what's great about, you know, these types of decentralized systems. So the SureTrack system which was the, the name of this system that was developed, is a decentralized system. So essentially you have a computer at every intersection. And so it's very scalable. So that's the essence SureTrack is scalable, is that it's very scalable to, to grow. So the 50 signals that we have now, the city has a grant to increase that to 200 intersections. So I think this, this city has about 600 some total signalized intersection. So we expect to see a lot more a lot more impact there as well. But what but what happened too was that SureTrack became the first layer in in a platform. So what we did was, you know, first we had the adaptive signals. And then in and the reason we picked those first nine intersections is because those first nine intersections in East Liberty was which was a the neighborhood that Google had moved into um, had just gotten traffic signals with cameras on them. And so all of a sudden, since you had sensors in the field, you were able to get better data to the traffic signals. And then they were able to make better machine learning decisions with better real-time data. But now, if we're testing that if you provide them those traffic signals with your route information. So what we did was we put dedicated short-range communications radios on these traffic signals as well. So you got vehicle to infrastructure communications. So the vehicle's talking to the traffic signals and the traffic signals talking to the vehicles. And so if you're able to then share your route information with those signals, they can, those signals can get you through the intersection 25% faster and the people around you because it knows exactly where you're going. It's not guessing until you come up to the, to the light, whether you're gonna go straight or turn. Uh, also, we're equipping, uh, we're doing another project where we're equipping blind pedestrians with pedestrian to infrastructure communication so that they can communicate directly and so that the signal can understand if the person's having trouble crossing, they can, the signal can give it the person more time. That was one of the issues we had early on was, you know, if you're, if you're, adapt, if you're optimizing just for vehicles, then you know, that can be to the detriment of, you know, pedestrians or, you know, or other vehicles that aren't being sensed. And so the more sensing you have out in the field, the smarter the, you know, the, the smarter the, the systems can optimize. And that's where we get into now the whole Internet of Things, 
world with particularly with the deployment of 5g is going to enable a lot more of this so we're actually have a proposal in for a a big um, uh, advanced wireless test bed on top of you know this existing system we have so that's what's been great about pittsburgh is it's you know we don't have a deployment in one neighborhood and a different deployment in a neighborhood if you keep building these deployments on top of each other then that's where you really start to get scale is there any chance a city can be too small for this type of smart technology? We, we referenced Butler before, and to our listeners, um, that's a small city about 30 miles north of Pittsburgh, which actually was home of the Pullman Car Company and was one of the richest cities in the United States for a great many years. Is a Butler too small? Is it the right size? Do you have to be Pittsburgh size? What's the sweet spot, Stan? Well, this is where we got into... Um, and this was after the USDOT in 2016 created the smart um, the, uh, the smart city challenge, and so that was a challenge where Pittsburgh was one of five finalists. Um, unfortunately, we didn't win. Columbus, Ohio, was the winner, and um, and they're doing a great job deploying uh, this you know a, a very broad initiative there, but. In, in, in part of Pittsburgh's initiative is what's turning into our 200 traffic signals equipped with the adaptive signals, et cetera. But at that same time, we were saying, wow, we've invested a lot of time and a lot of money into, the, into Pittsburgh and other smart cities. But there was a lot of questions from state legislators and federal legislators and others that were saying, you know, hey, this is really great for cities, but how can this technology be applied to either smaller cities or rural communities or suburban communities. So what we did was we took the same model that we started with the cities, you know, back in 1999, where we we went out and said, what are the real world problems you're having? We brought those problems back to our faculty and said, hey, these are the real world problems people are having, you know, optimizing traffic signals, et cetera. The faculty came back with, with uh, ideas for deployment. So we did the same thing with these communities. So starting in 2018, went to communities in the whole 10 county region around Pittsburgh. And we got responses from 24 communities in eight counties. And we ended up funding uh, six projects in four counties last year around, um, you know, what 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 are the real world problems you're having that technology might address? And what we found with that is that it's for technology to be applied, you need to have data and you need to have infrastructure. So the same way that we have, you know, that we've invested infrastructure in the past, you know, we started with um, seaports and then we went to canals and then we went to railroads and then we went to roads and then we went to airports. And we, you know, that, that was, those were the mobility infrastructure investments that we made in the past. Right now, what we're seeing is that the municipalities, big or small, and this is where Cranberry Township in Butler County, so not even the city of Butler, uh, which to your point had to pull them in, and uh, I'll also mention the Jeep. I forgot them. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the municipality, the Cranberry Township um, was uh, um, – they had a there was a big growth community it was in the north hills of the city of pittsburgh and in the southern part of butler county but was having a lot of growth and what they did was 
had a, an investment from companies coming into the community invested into a fund for transportation because they realized that if we're going to be growing, we're going to need to deal with transportation. So they created their own transportation management center and invested in a lot of uh, a lot of infrastructure. And so we were able to do a lot of work with them over the years, even though they're very, you know, a, you know, a suburban community. Um, so it really doesn't have to do with size. It has to do with you know, what type of infrastructure you have. And we've seen that with others. You know, there might be other cities that we want to go into, but if if there's no data for the researchers to work with or no sensors in the field or no broadband communications, it's very difficult to apply technological solutions. Sure. I want to, I have two more questions I want to ask you about Traffic 21, and then I want to move on to Mobility 21 as we get near um, a close to this podcast. But... One of the concerns, certainly, when you talk about connected cities is that these systems may unintentionally create a digital divide between parts of the community that have access to the infrastructure that allows these systems to operate and those that don't. Or even, you know, more granular, if you create these highly efficient cities that route traffic very well, you may have parts of your community that are left out where traffic that normally would go there and mom and dad would stop at the store and maybe buy something, you know, from the small shopkeeper or consider, you know, this neighborhood a place to live. That may may get cut out of the equation because we're optimized to not go there. How do you go back to the community and say, we are not going to, you know, divide your community, but we're going to join your community with this technology? I think we really need to focus on this, the issue of information communication technology to these communities. And a lot of that is with advanced wireless. You know, I think that may be a solution. And this is not, this is, we've seen this in two areas. One is we see this, of course, with rural communities and even a lot of suburban communities. And second, we also see it within neighborhoods of the city. So you can take, you can have very, you know, urban areas that have been cut off. And some, and a lot of this is due to our, you know, roadway infrastructure investments of, you know, between the 1950s and, you know, current time that we've cut off neighborhoods in cities. And we've also, uh, um, you know, in the, in, in especially if cities are, are disadvantaged economically, they're going to have less access. And so we want to make sure that, you know, people have access to, you know, education, workforce, all other, you know, types of recreational amenities or social amenities that they need. And I think that having the information and communications technology can kind of bridge a lot of those divides that were created by the the, the infrastructure that we have. So one is, you know, one area where that divide has been closing pretty rapidly is been with smartphone use. And so the more, um, the more people have access to real-time information, then you can have better access to, to mobility resources, especially if it's not your own vehicle, whether it's real-time transit information or uh, TNC information or whatever information it might be to kind of provide you more mobility. And again, this could be in dense urban areas or it could be in rural areas. But I think that having 
broadband technology and advanced wireless technology is a way to bridge those bridge those digital divides. Now, if we start thinking about what happens to all this data we're going to collect, whether it's data that are coming from the smart traffic cameras, whether it's the vehicle-to-vehicle communications that tell the power, the um, traffic signals, uh, we're going to grandma's store and then we're going to the doctor's office. How do we need to bake privacy into all of this technology so it's not an afterthought and we're playing catch-up? Can we do that? Or, you know, is the cat out of the bag and we're now playing catch-up on privacy? Well, I think pri- you know, privacy and security are always going to be a concern. So I think that's number one. I think if you look at, you know, what I try to equate this to in my mind is the, you know, the financial industry. You know, once we've, once we were comfortable enough to kind of first put a card in a machine and, you know, trust that that financial transaction was going to happen securely, or now, you know, make a transaction over a wireless network and have that transaction uh, be secure. It's really about the public confidence in that, because no matter what, there's still, con- you know, they're, they're still breached regularly, and it's enough not where it's you know constant, but again, it's enough where people are confident enough to do it, even though they realize that hey, this you know there is a privacy risk or there is a security risk to uh, you know to making this financial you know transaction, but I'm willing to do it because of the. You know, the convenience or the benefit that I'm getting. Oh, yeah. And we just, we, we, you know, people have to make sure that they're, you know, technologists are always going to be kind of chasing the bad guys in that process. But I think that from a, um, you know, from a data management side, when this, when kind of when I began in this 10 years ago, there was a lot more attention on a kind of centralized systems that, okay, how are we going to handle all this data when we get it? And, it's the data has increased so much that the you know there's now the realization that we're not trying to and of course when cloud computing came in as a as a solution to yeah, a lot of this is that yeah. right we don't need to hold this all in one place but then even more now the whole idea of edge computing and and so not in and processing a lot of this data right on site. So for instance, what we're doing with our traffic signal system or other systems that we're doing, we're doing that computing on site. We're not moving that data to a centralized traffic management center where there's a machine or the ability for a human to then control all the signals. These are all working independently. So I think we're moving to more and more decentralized systems. And those decentralized systems are processing that data locally and so you're not moving all that data and um, coordinating all that data in a central location so I think you uh, it's a it's a different way of, of looking at the privacy side because it is all happening on a decentralized localized basis as opposed to um, you know having a vault of data that has to be protected sure and so I think naturally to your point that's how the privacy and security gets baked in directly to the um, to the systems because they're all being developed in a decentralized way. Now, again, they can talk to each other, but they're not all dependent on each other. And we uh, we do have a what we call our mobility data analytics center here, where we try to gather all this multimodal and multi-jurisdictional data 
in order to do a lot of modeling and predictive analytics on what's going to happen to the transportation network if X, Y, or Z happens. Um, and that, and we have to do that these days because it's, uh, there is not a central location where this data is being controlled. And, uh, and, and, and if it is, it's more the companies than the, um, than the government. I remember when I first came in and that was the big question of saying that, you know, people would say, well, what happens if the government's going to, you know, collect all this information on us? And, and I would say, well, we're working with the government on that, whether it's local, state or federal government on these. And I said, that's not your worry is whether the local government is going to be collecting all this data. It's, you know, what is Google doing with this data? <laughs> and uh, because they're the ones, you know, it's the companies who are optimizing, um, you know, using this mobility data to help, you know, uh, you know, optimize routing. But they're also collecting a lot of data on us to understand what we're doing so they can predict what we're doing and, you know, and, uh, and, and use that data for, um, you know, for profit. And I think in the end, it's all about each and every one of us understanding what we're agreeing to when we provide that data, you know, whether it's to a private vendor, third party, whether it's to the government. And, you know, I think more people need to spend time thinking about what they're willing to give up, you know, in exchange for the conveniences that are out there. And this is right. The, the, the opting in is the, the key to that. And we, we've seen that from the beginning. And uh, it's, it, it's, it's, our, it's our choices. And we're trading uh, we're, we're trading that information for convenience. Yeah, and in and, some and, cases that's good, in some cases that's bad. But, you know, <laughs> each of us made that decision before we signed up for the app and put it on our phone. Right. <laughs> it, um, but I realized that when I, you know, and it kind of struck me when I went to, uh, and this was a few years ago, went to Disney World, and it's like you had to give them your fingerprints. <laughs> where, you know, where else does, you know, you know, where else would people accept that? Yeah. Well, it, uh, it's happiness has a price to some people. <laughs> that price is you can have my fingerprint. Stan, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and just spend the last couple minutes we have together talking about Mobility 21. You're executive director of Mobility 21. And, you know, I think it's scratching the surface if someone just stops and says, well, that's just synonymous with autonomous vehicles you might be missing the whole picture of Mobility 21. Can you maybe share with our listeners a great project that you're um, leading that uh, involves the Department of Transportation and CMU? Sure. So Mobility 21 is a national university transportation center. So USDOT has um, 37 university transportation centers that they fund. And uh, we had our original one, was called Technologies for Safe and Efficient Transportation, TSET. And that ran from 2012 uh, through 2018. And that was focused a little bit more on safety. And this new center is, that we were just awarded in 2017 is focused on improving the mobility of people and goods. And so this one fit, um, you know, was aligned with a lot of the smart community activities that we were doing. And so it really includes automated and connected vehicles, um, electric vehicles, shared use um, vehicle activity, mobility data analytics. So again, more of a kind of broader smart city 
scope of projects. But with all of these, you know, our, our focus has been, number one, using the community as a test bed, and then number two, under this whole theme of research, development, and deployment. How do we actually get the research out of the university, deployed and tested in the real world, and then hopefully even commercialized so that the research is, you know, is out there creating new companies and, in, in our case, you know, creating jobs here in Pittsburgh. And I just want to note also with that University Transportation Center, we have three partners. One is the Ohio State University. And so this brings in the work that's happening in Columbus, the uh, the winner of that Smart City Challenge for USDOT, uh, the University of Pennsylvania, a lot of work that we're doing out in the eastern part of the state as well. And for the first time, community colleges were allowed to be part of the University Transportation Center program through the FAST Act. So the Community College of Allegheny County is now a partner in this as well because we realize that it's not just about research. We need to be educating the workforce to be able to manage all these complex transportation systems, everything from the vehicle systems to the infrastructure systems. And so there's a lot of workforce all the way from the community college level to the Ph.D. level. Stan, when we talk about mobility, when we talk about driverless in particular, you know, the, the rubber hits the road in an entity called a city. Yet we have states that are looking at trying to figure out what is their role when it comes to regulating mobility. Um, certainly DOT in Washington has their own idea of what the role of a state and city should be. Let me ask you from your perspective, you're someone who has a national perspective, a state and a city perspective. What kind of partnerships do you need between those three entities to make sure that as we look at new mobility solutions that they're actually safe for the community that wants to start looking at them, whether it's on the road testing, you know, whether it's testing in a, in a um, more contained environment, like a small part of a city, what kind of relationships do those entities need to have? I think that those relationships are drastically evolving. And the reason it is, in my opinion, is that this mobility was defined originally of who was who was building the roads? Who was funding? Who who was paying to build the roads? And so there was actually a lot of interest early on of kind of, of you know, uh, you know, communities were happy to have the state or federal governments come in and fund the roadways and be responsible for the roadways. But you know, now what we're seeing is that, uh, and a lot of municipalities, of course, invest their their own funds into building and maintaining roadways. But a lot of this was really driven by our, you know, gas tax systems from the federal side and the state side and, um, and, and policies that were implemented more from a, you know, again, from a road building structure of the past. Um, now we have to look at mobility as a much broader suite of services. And this is where we see all these disruptive technologies coming in, whether it's through um, alternative fuel vehicles, shared use vehicles, and connected vehicles and autonomous vehicles. I see them as four parallel disruptive technologies. And what they're doing is really kind of confusing those traditional relationships that were pretty well defined of who takes care of which roads 
and um, and the federal, state, and local governments are uh, are facing that challenge now. And so, from an automated vehicle side, it, and even from a you know these other disruptive technologies as well, connected and and shared use and electric, the uh, you know the federal government has been wary to come in and pick winners and losers from a, from an industry standpoint. So it doesn't we haven't seen regulation coming there. And this was happening in the Obama administration and the Trump administration, particularly with the um, you know dedicated short range communications rulemaking through National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, for instance, or rules around autonomous vehicles. So we're not seeing much activity from the federal government. So the state governments were kind of stepping up and trying to identify how they could deal with this. State of Pennsylvania, we advised them early on, particularly through the Autonomous Vehicle Policy Task Force. Which you're on, uh, the by state. the way, for the listeners to know. Yes, I was, I was one of the uh, founding members of that. And it was in the state was really taking an innovative approach, started with um, Secretary Barry Shope, but really went to a, a, you know even a higher level with current Secretary Leslie Richards, who's a real national leader on this, uh, particularly um, through her role with I- ITS America and Transportation Research Board. She's uh, uh, an international advocate for this now. But um, really looking at how they could use policy, because if, if regular, rather than a regulatory process, because if you go through a regulatory process, that takes even longer to change in legislation. So how could the state have policy authority to be more flexible to work with companies? So that's the approach the state's been taking, but but it's still there was still the ability then for the cities, as uh, Mayor Peduto did here in in Pittsburgh, coming up with. And so what the what the federal government did was provided guidance, and then the state then also provided guidance, and then the city of Pittsburgh on top of that provided guidance. So actually, all three entities, and this is for autonomous vehicle testing, none of them went to the process of actually creating regulations or to you know detailed legislation or some legislation but nothing too detailed but to actually provide this uh, guidance and because the industry wants to understand what the states want to do and this is typical of most industries from my experience but and definitely with this one is they want to you know they want to be compliant with what the policymakers want to do they just want to know what the ground rules are and that's what government always asks for. They say, just let us know what the ground rules are, and then we can make plans and play by the ground rules. But without them making legislation and and regulations, this guidance has been helpful. That's where we are now from the testing side. It seems that this is, you know, moving more to a standards-based system. So we're starting to see a lot more activity from Underwriters Laboratory and the Society of Automotive Engineers (SAE), based um, in Cranberry, by the way. Yeah, exactly. So they're uh, uh, really, in, you know, they're working. There's a, a, a spin-out company of CMU called uh, Edge Case. Uh, Phil Koopman and Mike Wagner um, are uh, not, you know, now national leaders around this idea of, you know, how do we, how do we look at testing and standards. And so that's where I see this moving to right now. And I think we're going we're gonna to remain in this gray area for at least the next couple years 
till a lot of this technology evolves. But as long as we have the, and this is where I think Pittsburgh has been doing well, and the state of Pennsylvania has been doing well, is that the autonomous vehicle companies that are here, and CMU as one of the existing testers as well, we are in constant conversations with the mayor of the city of Pittsburgh, Secretary Richards from PennDOT, about what we're doing and concerns they have and concerns the community has, and kind of working through them all in a you know, in open conversations. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're still having success in, you know, in testing here and in starting to do deployments here because we're, uh, we have this, these relationships. On this particular topic, and that being the mayor being proactive, the state of Pennsylvania being proactive, We've kind of seen two different regulatory philosophies come out. You've got the Pittsburgh approach, which I think is, and I hope you, you agree, is very pragmatic. Um, we're not looking, essentially it says, we're not looking for a specific set of benchmarks that will let us decide whether or not this vehicle is safe. You know, for instance, the um, disengagement rate on um, the autonomous systems versus what we see in California, which essentially says, we want to know exactly what your disengagement rate is. And if it gets too high, uh, we're going to flip a switch and, and turn off your testing. So um, in the end, Stan, we both know that at, at some point, there's going to be a terrible accident again. Do you think things like the disengagement rate, do you think things like hard metrics actually need to be fed into public policy? Or do you think public policy needs to get out of the business of saying, you know, here are the 10 metrics that you have to meet. Otherwise, we're not going to let you operate your vehicles in our city. I think the approach that, you know, Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh are taking is, is preferable to the approach of California. And, uh, and I think in California did that first. And I think that's why the state of Pennsylvania and then therefore Pittsburgh kind of went in that other direction because they were seeing how difficult. And I remember even before the existing system they have had was when, you know, Google came out again in 2014 and the state legislature, and it was actually Google that first approached the state legislature to say, hey, we need to, you know, we want to help grow this in in California, and so we need legislation to allow for the testing here. And then the legislation went through and said, okay, now the State Department of Motor Vehicles has to come up with regulations around how we're gonna uh, you know, allow these vehicles. All of a sudden, then they realized, wow, how do we do that? And <laughs> that's I think, a, that's a, uh, yeah, that's pretty big. It's a big challenge and, and to I, tackle. And I think they found that they still have are having a lot of trouble tackling that because it is, you know, they're, they're not in a position to be able to define that. And not just because they don't, they don't know as much as the technologists or the companies know. It's the idea that it's, that it changes so quickly. And the, you know, and the disengagements, you know, and anyone can kind of, you know, operate to the metrics, but if you're, if you're testing and you want to improve the, the technology, you want to be having disengagements because you want to be finding out what are the flaws that need to be addressed. So, you know, you, you don't want a vehicle to, you know, you don't want to be out there and say, hey, this vehicle is, um, you know, this vehicle doesn't have any trouble, 
you know, it's not having disengagement problems. So this, this is a successful vehicle. And then it's kind of oversold. And I think that's where you get more into kind of, you know, Tesla issues more where you, you, you don't want to be overselling this technology at this point, particularly at this point, because there will be future crashes and, you know, in, in future, um, fatalities and, and injuries. And the idea is that you don't want to, you, you want to make sure that the public is understanding this in a, you know, and understanding the risk in a realistic way and not in a way that is, I, you know, and again, I think this is why the, 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 the hype bubble burst in 2018 after the Tempe accident was because if, and, and this is what I do through my blog is that track all of the media on this and that you know and so much of the media was so hyped at that point of just saying that look this technology is happening tomorrow and it's going to solve all our problems and it's you know we're almost that perfect and then all of a sudden an incident like that happens and people realize no we're not so you don't want to mislead the public you want to just like i was saying earlier with the the privacy risks and the financial transaction risks of, of, you know, of these mobility systems or our, you know, our credit card systems. We need to be very open with the public that say, hey, these are services out there. and These technologies have great attributes, but these technologies and all technologies in history all have risks. And we have to understand what they are. And, and I think the more open and transparent we are with the public, the, you know, the, the better we can handle you know, adversity in the future. Sure. Well, I think what you've done with the Pennsylvania Autonomous Vehicle Policy Task Force, what the city is doing here, I just think it's very laudable. It's very pragmatic. And on that note, I just want to I want to end the show here. And uh, I found something very interesting you said back in 2016. And I just want to ask you a question about it, Stan. You said in 2016, I believe we're going to look back one day and say, when did we ever quit driving? And I want to know, does that make you an optimist about the technology or a realist? I couldn't tell. <laughs> well, I, I think it's an, it's an optimism, but it's, a, it's, it's understanding that this is an evolutionary process. And kind of my, my new mantra on a lot of this is that we may never quit driving. You know, and that's okay. We may always be a supervisor to an automated vehicle, and uh, and that would be okay. We can still have significant reductions in crashes and fatalities. We can still have significant increases in systems optimizations, but we don't have to. We don't have to say, look, this is all level five full automation with no, you know, no human intervention, but, you know, look at, you know, we had elevator systems and uh, phone systems that required operators and people to intervene, even if it's only one in a millionth time, um, maybe we always need to be supervising these machines as humans. Maybe that's our role. And, and again, that's, that's okay. You know, so, so I still believe from 2016 that we're on this evolutionary process and um, and again, maybe we never truly quit driving. Maybe we never put our hands on a wheel in a car in 10 years and you only do it, to, you know, to avert an emergency or help your car when it gets totally confused. 
I think that's a way we have to keep looking at this as an evolutionary process, not as, you know, what what's the day that I'm going to say no more old cars. I'm going out and buying my first autonomous vehicle. I don't think we're, that will be the road we go down. Well, Stan, you have just been an incredible guest. I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed our conversation. And you are welcome back to Thinking Through Autonomy at, at any time. Again, thank you. Well, thank you for providing the service. And uh, I look forward to hearing the podcast.